Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPADPOD, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Janine Clark. Janine is Professor in Political Science at the University of Guelph. She's the author of the recent book, Local Politics in Jordan and Morocco, Strategies of Centralization and Decentralization. She's also the Editor-in-Chief of Middle East Law and Governance, a wonderful journal that I'm sure many of you know. She's also contributed to a range of different texts, edited collections, looking at a range of aspects of Middle Eastern politics and the study of the region, which I was particularly excited by. So, Janine, thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. The pleasure is ours, Janine. The pleasure is ours. Could you um, start, as I normally do, by by just telling us a little bit about what what, uh, piqued your interest with regard to the Middle East and indeed academia? Oh, my goodness. Um, I think academia is something I more or less fell into. Right, I okay. I finished one degree and just didn't think it was enough, so did another. <laughs> and the Middle East is quite simply a travel bug that got out of control. Okay. <laughs> Traveled to the region and uh, was just fascinated. So... Um, Came, you know, came back, did my, went, continued into my grad school and uh, decided this was now going to be what I wanted to study. Amazing. So, so it really was more serendipity than anything else. I love it. Where, where was the first place in the region that, that your travel bug took you to? Turkey. Okay. And Several trips to Turkey, which I fell in love with. Um, it was amazing. And that, that really changed everything. Okay, yeah, and then from there, Egypt, etc. So, so you say it changed everything. How so? Did you have a an idea of what you wanted to do before you visited Turkey, or or it changed things intellectually? What What do you mean by that? Um, in terms of what I planned on doing, I was planning on specializing in Latin America. Okay. I'm not sure why anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and um, went to Turkey and started really questioning sort of all of that, sort of why I wanted to. Um, specialize in Latin America. And I think also that really began uh, a lot of my interest in this relationship between religion and politics, which up till then I had not really given much thought. Um, yeah, okay. And I started, and, and eventually that led me to my early research was on, in my first book and my PhD was on Islamism. Right. Um, in starting with Egypt. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so in many ways it changed a lot about how I looked at, you know, my interests and how I looked at the world, etc. So, what do you recall from that that early trip to Turkey and and the the trips, the subsequent twi- trips back there? What what are your abiding memories of that time? Oh my goodness. Um I think what and and you know, now of course I realize these you know, so-called revelations or insights I had then were really based on many stereotypes that I didn't know I had. Yeah, uh, sure. uh, Without a doubt. Um, but I think it was how, at least at that point in time, or at least what I perceived, uh, the seamless nature of what seemed to me religion, um, technology, what I sort of saw it as things that at that point in time, they were incongruent, you know, someone being yeah. very religious and yet, quote unquote, modern, um, religious and, you know, uh, engaging in the so-called modern political system and modern technology. So it's a tension now that I'm, I, you know, that, that I would no longer call attention. And in fact, I look back and I, you know, of course, that observation was based, as I said, on a lot of um, 
stereotypes, etc. But um, th- that's what really grabbed me. It was sort of my first introduction um, to uh, sort of religious uh, groups and their interaction with, with the quote-unquote modern world, let's put it that way. That's really interesting to hear you say that. And I guess looking back on my own travels across the region, uh, particularly in the early stages, I, I had similar types of sort of stereotypical views of things as a consequence of, well, I guess the the complexity and orientalist imbued views of, of the region embedded within Western society. But is there something in particular that, that you think or you can trace some of, of these stereotypes that, that you held back to? Or is it just something similar in terms of it being embedded within societies that we are we are living and working in i think it's the latter exactly sort of embedded in our societies our school systems i think i was you know un, you know unconsciously a product of all of that and never really critically thought about modernization theory the assumptions it made sort of the education i'd been given as well as the stereotypes embedded in media in the school system and and everything i'd really never been introduced to the Middle East in any in-depth manner, either at that point as an undergrad or, or, or anything. So I sort of came to the whole, my interest in the region sort of a little bit, a lot later actually than many people, um, and I had a lot of catching up to do and sort of critically examining my own ideas and the literature I had been exposed to, etc. Right, okay. So that, that prompted the interest in the intellectual side of things. But in terms of, of political science, was that something that, that you studied from your undergraduate days all the way through graduate study? Or was this something that that was born out of this, this interest in the tension that you were just describing? Well, actually, my undergrad is in geography. Okay, uh, interesting. Yeah. And I did, um, one of, I did one of my years as an undergrad um, at a university in Germany. And for my undergraduate undergraduate thesis, I did a project on, I can't remember the exact details, but it was on the growth or creation of um, migrant Turkish, whether or not they're creating migrant Turkish ghettos. So I was really looking, so it was, you know, I was mapping this one town where areas of you know, um, Turks were living in this city, etc. It was a very geography project, rugby oriented project. But it did get me more and more interested, obviously, in the politics surrounding what were then Turkish guest workers. Um, You know, it was a relatively, relatively new phenomenon. And it did lead me to a uh, to vacation, like go just for vacation in in Turkey. And so it's so no, I um, and then it was later that I decided to switch out of geography and I became more and more interested in issues of politics and switched into political science. That's really interesting to to hear. I think I'm maybe going the other way a little bit in terms of bringing in some of the the human geography, at least, into my own work. But but I think that's an interesting move. So onto the graduate studies then. Your your PhD you mentioned was on Islamist movements, and was that focusing purely on Egypt or or broader comparison? What was going on there? Um, my PhD was just on Egypt right. uh, after. Uh, I defended. Um, I then went on and put it, turned it into a broader comparative study by bringing in Yemen and Jordan. Mm-hmm. But the thesis was just on Egypt, um, looking actually at Islamic uh, charitable associations. 
with the role of, and I loosely defined it because at that point in time, there was really the Muslim Brotherhood was illegal. There were, there was no lists of, you know, charitable associations where I could sort of find them, but there were these charitable associations that had everything from daycare to providing med free medical care that were associated with a variety of mosques. And I, I became really interested in these largely because, um, and, and ultimately my question was, you know, what is the political significance of these charitable activities by Islamist groups? Um, but I actually became interested in it because I got really sick in Egypt. All right. And okay. I went to a variety of doctors, and this is, you know, I, at that point I was just there doing language instruction, mm -hmm. uh, well, learning language. And um, I went to a couple of doctors, um, and no one seemed to be diagnosing me properly, and I was getting very ill. And my roommate at the time um, had an Egyptian friend over and said, we should take her around the corner to this, this clinic around the corner. And I didn't really care. I just wanted to get better. Sure, and, yeah. um, and so they took me, much to my surprise, to a clinic in the basement of a mosque. Um, and you know, everything was fine after that. I was actually diagnosed properly. I went home, everything was fine. And it was later when I got home, I started sort of reading articles and all of a sudden I realized there were mentions of these medical clinics and mosques. And I thought, oh my goodness, I was in one of those. And then I realized I'd been in, you know, in one of what were now considered a phenomenon. Like it was, this was something that I could study. This was not just sort of, I hadn't really thought, I'd been sick. I hadn't thought of the significance of me going into a, a medical clinic, the base of the mosque. I just wanted to get better. Yeah, of course, so after yeah. I got home and I was better, etc. that's when I thought, oh my goodness, there is something here. There's this phenomenon of all these charitable clinics. There's maybe three articles written on it, only one of which is really based in any sort of field work. But most, you know, the general tone was these, this is something to be feared. There's this massive recruitment going on in yeah. these clinics. Um, this is dangerous. Well, that hadn't been my experience. I had gone to this mosque. I mean, the doctor, nobody said anything. The doctor was slightly surprised to see a, a Western woman there, but there was really no issue whatsoever. So certainly in terms of the clinic I'd gone to, it didn't really sort of jibe with what I was reading in these very, very limited number of articles. Um, and, you know, and the premise of these articles was that these doctors were recruiting patients. Right. But it became very clear to me if you look at much of the literature on social movements that um, social movements, you know, like tends to recruit like, that social movements actually struggle. One of their challenges is to overcome differences. Um, and so it would be unusual for educated doctors etc., to jump class lines and because many of the clinics are in poor areas, not all, um, you know, and recruit, uh, let's say, patients of a poor, you know, a different socioeconomic background. So it was this tension between my experience, the article, the limited articles I was reading on the clinics, and the articles on social movement theory that made me think there's really something here to sort of look at. So I went back and I uh, went to clinics and started doing interviews. Right. Okay. What was the status of these these clinics then within within Egyptian society? Because I, I guess some of these groups had a complex and perhaps ambiguous relationship with with state power. So so where were these clinics positioned? 
Well, you know, they're they're all over the city, or at least they were then. Um, uh, and they had different sort of origins. So some of them were definitely a decision by, let's say, somebody who is affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood or an organization, not just the Brotherhood, um, that they wanted to do this, that they wanted to open a clinic, and sort of a decision was made, this is where it's going to be opened, um, This a, a, a neighborhood was targeted, etc. Others actually were much more, let's say, uh, bottom-up. They'd be just people in the neighborhood who said, we need something, and they would organize. Now, again, they would be people who were doing this out of uh, a sense of tr- true, you know, religiously inspired charity you know, uh, or um, charitable beliefs. So they came from, you know, different, the origins were different, but they were also um, both in very wealthy neighborhoods and in very poor neighborhoods. They ran the full gamut. And in the wealthier neighborhoods, they were generally, you know, the clinics were basically practically small hospitals. They had machinery. I mean, the, the extent of the services was extremely impressive. They had uh, numerous doctors. And this then went all the way down to those that would be sort of one room, tiny things where there was no equipment. The, you know, the doctor probably, you know, would, would, they'd all have a do- job during the day and this would be something they did in the evening. Um, any medicine they had to give out would be medicine that somebody else hadn't used completely and there are now, you know, uh, the leftovers could be used for somebody else. Right. Okay. They ran a like the differences were massive. Also in terms of, um, uh, yes, just in terms of also, um, their attitude towards the, the state. Um, certainly many of the grassroots ones, let's say, I mean, all these clinics were fully registered, but certainly, uh, let's put it this way, they were, they differed also in sort of their politicization, we'll say that. Yeah, that's, that's understandable, I guess, given the, the complexity of, of the political situation and the socioeconomic forces that were at play. Uh, Ginny, there's, there's something that struck me that you mentioned that you, you had received medical attention in Egypt while you were there, while you were, were feeling unwell, but that they had struggled to properly diagnose you until you went to the clinic in the in the mosque so that that suggests that that some of the people who are working in these clinics are actually incredibly well qualified and well trained at the top of their game in terms of of their profession oh without a doubt the doctors were the, the doctors were not there because they couldn't get a job or weren't very good doctors by no means many of them had Either we're working in a hospital during the day and, you know, we're doing this out of um, a sense of, again, uh, charity or um, you know, just, yeah, largely a sense of charity. Some needed some extra money. Um, some had their own clinics. None of them were unemployed doctors or unemployable doctors. No, there right, was okay. a, a very high degree of medical competency for sure. That's that's really interesting. What are the the sort of the broader aspects that stem out of this then? I mean, the the book that you mentioned earlier, Islam, Social Welfare and the Middle Class, talks about networks and activism and charity. And it strikes me that, that clinics and welfare is at the heart of all of this. So what what does the presence of, of these clinics do for the cultivation 
activation of, of particular networks and the provision of welfare? Well, what I really found was sort of this incredible overlap. It, it wasn't really sort of a design strategy between um, amongst doctors. So I did not find recruitment from doctors down to patients, let's say, although I'm not sure down is the correct word. Um, but I did find very much uh, this reinforcement of these strong ties of solidarity that occurred between doctors, as there were networks between, let's say, doctors working in these hospitals who then sent their children perhaps to the same school. This was particularly strong when I went to Jordan, um, who then, whose mothers maybe worked in a charity. There were all these overlapping networks creating right. sort of this entire, um, let's say, um, you know, uh, society in which sort of this middle class worked and from middle class Islamists worked in which they could not only get jobs, but also get the types of services that they couldn't necessarily afford. They weren't quite of the elite. They didn't want their children to go to some of the more elite private schools that were too secular in orientation um, for their you know, liking. And it enabled them to sort of live this, uh, to create this sort of... Um, larger social welfare system, by that including schools, etc., yeah. that gave them a better, their children, for example, a better education, they felt, than this public education, and more to their liking than the private. It gave them jobs, it gave them access to services and a community, and, and that start would overlap also, and for many of them, into more active politics as well. And so there were these networks that just bound it all together. Right. And these are, are sort of malleable entities, formal, based on sort of social movement type understandings of networks. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I would say that. Yeah. Okay, fascinating. I would urge anyone to, to pick up a copy of Janine's book. It raises some really, really interesting points and sheds light on on a really interesting way of, of looking at politics. But I'd like to move away from that, if I may, and, and talk a little bit about your more recent book, which focuses more on Jordan and, and Morocco. The title is Local yes. Politics in Jordan and Morocco, Strategies of Centralization and Decentralization. So what's, what's the main thrust of this book then, Janine? This book, for me, was about, I, I felt that local politics was something that was just really ignored in most parts of the Middle East, in terms of the study of the Middle East. Sorry, what do you really, mean exactly by local politics, just so our listeners are, are clear at this point? Well, that's a very good question. I should have been clearer. <laughs> I meant basically sort of municipal politics. What's happening okay. at the municipal le level? Given that in most countries, in many countries, there are elections at the municipal level. Yeah. Um, and but it's also at the municipal level. You see, you know, in some cases, tribal politics come into play. It's here also. You have a lot of uh, civil society organizations at sort of this very municipal level. A lot of investment, maybe by even or programs by the EU or the World Bank, there's actually a tremendous amount happening at this sort of municipal level, uh, you know, not these big grand national projects or, um, or looking at national political parties, that goes um, completely un unnoticed. Um, and, uh, you know, the, that had always been an interest of mine, a strong interest of mine. 
And it was actually um, a colleague, um, Mona Harb at um, AUB, Hmm. who commented about how it would be very interesting to look at these sort of very incipient decentralization programs. And, uh, you know, gradually that sort of evolved. And I thought decentralization, given it's starting to really take root in the Middle East, would be a really interesting way of sort of understanding, looking at what's happening at the municipal level, but then also trying to understand um, how the municipal level then in turn also affects the national level. And how does it? What is that type of relationship? Although I imagine it differs across across time, space, and, and context. Well, it definitely um, d- differs. But at the very root, what I sort of you know, the, and the well, underlying premise of the book is that you know programs are such as decentralization are not just imposed upon the local level. I think what's missing a lot of studies is that look, actors at municipal level have a tremendous amount of agency. And in fact, what you what I found, although it, it, you know it dif- differs on how this is done, is that local actors then adapt programs to their own needs. Um, they incorporated it according to what works best for them at the local level in terms of may it be their party politics or whatever their politics may be. And then this in a turn has a ripple effect in terms of what it means back, you know, at the national level. But I, you know, and that, that was a big part of the, the project was to sort of uncover this agency at the municipal level, what it all means. And in this case, vis-a-vis the decentralization programs. So can you, right, okay, interesting. Can you say a little bit about that scope for agency then? Because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking to what extent and what spaces does this, does this agency operate? I mean, is it, is it predicated on sort of the creation of formal spaces and formal avenues through which municipal bodies or representatives can articulate? demands, desires, concerns to to political elite centrally? Or or is it a more informal type of relationship? Or is it something completely different? I would say it's more informal. So I'm going to focus on Morocco, which has had decentralization. Sure, okay. Uh, and what you really find is, you know, as in many authoritarian regimes, decentralization is implemented not as a means of greater democratization, but rather as a means of in some ways you could say downloading responsibility for some issues to the local level, creating a, in many ways almost a facade of reform, um, you know, democratic reform, etc. And so many throughout the world authoritarian regimes, and this includes Morocco, when they institute decentralization, while they give real powers um, to the local level to actually do things, give them some budgetary powers, decision-making powers they haven't had before. So in that sense, it's truly de- decentralization. At the same time, in, for example, in the case of Morocco, the decentralization law is written with very, very vague, vague, vague terms. <laughs> you surprised in me. In order that, exactly, at any point, state actors at a higher level can really step in and take control. Right. Uh, there's still tremendous powers of, you know, budgetary oversight. There's still quite a few powers that can be, and some of them are quite arbitrary and informal. Uh, a governor, for example, in Morocco has huge discretionary powers and may or may not choose to exert them. Um, but at the local level, so what you find is at the local level that um, 
actors who have traditionally sort of benefited from these chains of patron clientelism, their political parties are sort of inside the system, have benefited from patronage, etc., are very much able to take advantage of the vagueness, uh, you know, of the uh, municipal charter and basically continue business as usual in the sense that, for example, uh, the municipal charter gives tremendous powers to, I shouldn't say tremendous, but it creates opportunities for civil society actors to become involved in decision-making. So committees are meant to be set up of civil society actors. They are supposed to have um, the ability to have input into the creation of local development plans, etc. But all of this is very vague and that there's no rules set up. So in places where we see tremendous patronage um, and these, well, I should say, patron clientel ties, we see a lot of the patrons just simply open up an NGO. So they're, they've been elected as a municipal councillor. And there they have the hat on as a municipal councillor. But then they sit on the Council for Civil Society, but now they put on their hat that they're, uh, you know, an NGO, a head of an NGO. Um, they're also on the committee that votes as to who's going to get funding, which NGO is going to get funding. And there's no rules that really con um, about these sort of conflicts of interest, what we would call them. So decentralization enabled a lot of the pro-regime parties that have relied tremendously on patron clientelism to stay in power to continue to do so. At the same time, what I found, um, let's say, the... Um, the, uh, the Islamists, the um, PJD, um, the Party for Justice and Development, it had never been on the inside of the system. It did not sort of run on patron clientelism at the local level. And, and the charter, actually, the municipal charter, gave it actually the leverage to, um, to take advantage of actually the spirit of decentralization to right. argue we are the ones that are truly going to implement what the charter is meant to do. Mm -hmm. So they started working with civil society organizations and saying, if you elect us, we will make sure you are on the, a proper civil society uh, committee. You will have a voice in decision making. And so the PJD at the local level enacted a variety of strategies to sort of win, to build the trust with um, other civil society actors, non-Islamist civil society actors, and all based on we are going to take advantage of this new cha charter as it's intended in spirit. So in that sense, the charter, both pro-regime parties and opposition party, in this case the PJD, are able to sort of take advantage of the charter to basically further their own political purposes. One via ongoing and deepening and broadening patron clientelism and the other via the charter, actually. Okay. Uh, the the point about the spirit of decentralization is is fascinating to me, and it strikes me that it's it's one of those ambiguous amorphous terms that can mean whatever whatever the actor involved wants it to mean. Is that is that appropriate? Well, I think what I meant by that was the idea. If we look at the World Bank, etc., is that decentralization is meant to. Um, not only ensure that um, actors get um, equitable access, well, it's meant to ensure that actors get equitable access to yeah. services. Sure. And the way it's meant to ensure it is that actors all get 
of voice in the decision making. So decentralization is not just about bringing decision making down to lower levels. The idea being the closer you are to the actors receiving the services, the more you're going to be able to give better services because you understand their needs. Yeah. But it's also about, let's say, more horizontally bringing civil society actors, as I said, into decision making through various committees, etc. So that's what I meant by the spirit of it. The spirit okay, sure. is there's supposed to be greater democratization, yeah. more equitable services, um, you know, greater voice for civil society. And this is what the PJD is able to capitalize on and take advantage of by implementing that in its spirit. And that's going to that helped it get um, elected, whereas it's not that part that's of very much interest to a lot of the pro-regime parties that are based in patron clientelism. But what they find is that the vagueness of the charter enables them to take advantage of yeah. these committees, etc., and further their goals. Sure. OK, that, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Janine. We're running out of time, but if I may, I'd just like to touch on the the collection that you you worked on with Francesco Cavatorta on yes. research methods, which I think is incredibly important, incredibly valuable. It's something that I use uh, at, at various points with students of mine. So I just wanted to, to ask you a few things about it, if I may, in terms of, well, what's the what was the incentive behind it? What was what was the intention behind doing a book on on research methods in this particular Middle Eastern context? Well, actually, I think, you know, the incentive was twofold from my perspective. One was I've been teaching a course on qualitative methods for a while at my university. And one of the things I've noticed for years and years is that, well, most textbooks are very good at telling you how you should do things. The reality is once you're in the field, you encounter all sorts of situations, obstacles, etc. That mean you can't really, it's very difficult yeah. to implement field research methods in the textbook fashion. So for a long time in class, I um, would bring in other faculty members and guest speakers to talk about their own uh, field research experience. Um, field research, but would ask them to stress the problems they had, sure. the difficulties they yeah. had and how they overcame them. So that was really, at least a, from my perspective, a really important um, aspect I wanted to bring out in this, in the book. Um, and we decided, although I think the book speaks to anybody doing field research, um, we decided to stick with the Middle East, which is both our areas, obviously, of specialization. Um Largely because we felt there um, were some issues, um, ABC audience we know best, and we felt there might be some particular um, issues that um, were potentially unique to the Middle East, although in many cases, once the article, the chapters were written, we found out they weren't, uh, that <laughs> yeah. people could benefit from. Sure. So, so that's why we set up the book. The first section was set up in terms of contexts. Um, we asked people to write specific uh, chapters on context that we felt might be particularly unique or of interest, well, whether it be research under, you know, Palestinian occupation, um, or religious context, Saudi Arabia, Iran, etc. And then the second section, although they obviously speak to each other, was strictly people were asked to write about a specific method. And then the third section, we asked people to write about specific ethical issues they'd encountered. Well, I must thank you for pulling it together because I think it's such a oh. such a useful and important text. So thank oh, you to you. to you both for doing it. Yeah. 
Thank you very much. And I, I, I applaud the spirit of focusing on the, the challenges because I think it's, I mean, even in, in your lectures and in the book, this sense that early career scholars who go and do field work think that their more senior colleagues have got it nailed, they know exactly what to do, they don't ever have any issues, and that they're the only ones who who hit hurdles in the field. And I think this is such an important myth to, to debunk. Yeah, and, and I have to give so much credit to all the people who contributed to the book because it's very hard to write about the problems you have. We're, we're not trained to do that. Yeah. And so there were a lot of people that had to say, what do you mean I have to write about everything I've done wrong? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I have to really applaud everybody. I, it, was, it, was, it was a really enjoyable uh, process, but um, uh, I think everybody really learned a lot from it. Well, I certainly have done, and I know that many others have as well. So so thank you. Yeah. Janine, one final question, and it's hopefully an easy one. Would you like to say anything about your, your editor-in-chief position at the journal? Is there anything that you'd like anyone to know about the journal, given that you're, you're relatively new in post, and while people may know the journal for the excellent work that it publishes, is there anything that you'd like to share while you have this um, this albeit small platform, but a platform nonetheless. Yes, thank you. I think we're instituting a variety of things at Middle East Law and Governance that I'm hoping are going to be of interest to junior scholars as well as to scholars based in uh, the MENA region. Um, by introducing a variety of different ways people can contribute, we're introducing case commentaries. These are shorter articles that revolve around a legal decision. We're introducing um, field notes. Melga's always had field notes, and they were notes about the state of the field of Middle East studies. We've now expanded that, that it could be notes from the field, observations, or it can be uh, notes on field work. Um, so these are both... Um, I think easier ways for maybe junior scholars to have access to publication and of interest to others. And in addition to special issues, which the journals always had, we're now introducing roundtables, which are really sort of smaller special issues. The articles are half the length, but still revolving around one topic. So we're trying to make the journal um, very flexible in terms of the types of submissions that can attract a variety of scholars and scholarship. Amazing. And if anyone has any questions or they want to clarify anything, then they should just get in touch with you. Definitely. Just email me or that would be great at jclark at uoguelph.ca. Fantastic. Well, Janine, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been oh, an absolute pleasure. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. As always, thank I've learned too. a great deal. So thank you. It's been an absolute honor. Thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you. Thanks, Janine. And as always, thanks for listening. Until next time.